Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Uh, it's good to be here. This is a very, very exciting day because I get to sit across from somebody who I've known for a long, long time and who uh, treated me like I belonged even when I didn't belong. And that is David Janelari, a man who has been everything from a network executive to a studio head guy to a network president. I mean, the guy's done everything in his career, unlike me, who has done pretty much absolutely nothing in that nature in my career. But anyway, maybe some decade before I die, I'll actually have one of those titles that I'll make for myself. Um, So firstly, before I start, uh, I normally do a cold open uh, to sort of relate in some way to my guest. And I've been looking through his information, his bio, which is literally like war and peace. It's incredible, all the things that he's done. And I noticed something on here that's going to really take me to a certain place, I think, and where I want to go. But before I do, I wanted to thank everybody for all the emails and the reviews and the texts and the Facebooks and the tweets. Uh, It's incredible, the support. And again, we're very excited because we are going to be going to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival uh, where they're inviting us and flying us out. And uh, we're doing a live podcast with the president of original programming for Comedy Central, a man that David Janelari knows very well, Kent Alterman. Uh, and Kent is a fascinating guy who you'll enjoy that. And if you are up in Montreal, I hope you can come. It's Thursday afternoon at 4.30. And uh, 
Kent is like the kind of guy that if he wasn't if he wasn't in the business, he would be the kind of guy who was a comedian who was headlining at Largo in Hollywood. You know, he's got that very incredible comedy way about him where you don't you have no idea what he said, if it's supposed to be funny or if he's being serious because he gives you that look on his face after he says it. You're like, if you laugh, you think he's going to kill you. And if you don't laugh, he's like, why wasn't that funny? So um, so I tend to do something that works all the time is I just laugh at everything. <laughs> so I figure, you know, if you're going to get somebody upset at you, they might as well be upset at you for laughing as opposed to not laughing. Um, anyway, so my uh, story that I, I want to tell is not really a story. It's an observation from my life that I wanted to share with all of you people. And whatever profession you're in, I think this will have a relationship to it is that when I was starting in the business, um, there was no Def Jam. You know, there were no sitcoms on television with stand-up comedians, except one that was just starting, uh, which was the Cosby Show. But Cosby was an icon. He was a guy who'd been around for forever and, 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 you know, had like so many albums and he was a part of the public consciousness. He was like a household name. He was like a, in terms of comedy in 1980 and today, if you were putting together your Mount Rushmore of comedians, he would be on there uh, to this day. And before when Seinfeld did the movie comedian, one of the things where the movie ended or around the time was when he went to visit Cosby doing a two o'clock in the afternoon show. And he's in like a theater that has four levels and he's still selling out. So there weren't a lot of comedians doing things then. And I didn't have a lot of influences because the only times you could really watch a comedian perform again, there's no HBO there's no, there's no nothing. So the only time you get to see anybody perform is either during the day on the Mike Douglas show or um, the Merv Griffin show doing a two o'clock in the afternoon comedy spot, which, as you know, not good. You know, it's not 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 going to be a situation where somebody's going to get a standing ovation and people running around, you know, on the Mike Douglas show or Merv by the <laughs> piano. Um, but there was a show that was on at a time that uh, I used to get home from going out and doing my thing. And it was on after Saturday Night Live in my area. It was a syndicated show. It was called Showtime at the Apollo. And ironically, the host, when I started watching it, was Bill Cosby. But then they started using other comedians on the show uh, to, to host. And there was a comedian that I saw that was one of the most brilliant comedians I'd ever seen in my life. He's six foot seven or eight. He's an African-American guy. He's a good looking guy, but he's not Denzel Washington. It's a character kind of good looking. And he's killing and he's doing brilliant comedy, like the kind of comedy that I dream of seeing, like it's subject matters that I just have never seen before. And he's edgy, but it's a show where you can't swear. And he's doing these brilliant 
pieces about subjects. You know, he's not the kind of guy going on, hey, what part of the chicken does the McNugget come from? Uh, you know, or, or, or like, hey, I was just on an airplane and I flew over here. And, you know, airport food is none of that. It was just going this this urban attitude. It was like it was like a combination of of, of Chris Rock at his greatest and Chappelle at his greatest, along with a part of Def Jam, but that where there were no swears. And his name was Mark Curry. <laughs> and. I, like, couldn't get enough of this guy. I would try to find tapes on him, do whatever. He was from Oakland. And this is before I started managing anybody. I just was blown away by this guy. And um, always would tell people about him. When they finally met him, I was just, you know, I was just telling him how much I respected what he did. And then something happened along the way with Mark Curry. And he'd gone through some personal tragedies. He was involved in a horrible fire and an accident, things that happened to him. But what I want to talk about is the process of a stand-up comedian and the choices that you have as a comedian when you're working with a development team, a network, executives, and what's the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, what can hurt you, what can help you, and the world and how it works in this manner. As David Janelari knows, because he was involved in the development of the television show for Mark Curry, Mark Curry was had a point of view. If you're any comedian out there, you're going to hear from every development executive and every network executive, and every president. We will watch you. We will look at you if you have a point of view, if you have something that's there. You know, Tim Allen, you know, men are pigs. Roseanne, domestic goddess. There's always something that somebody has. Jim Gaffigan, the Midwestern guy. It's just everybody has their thing. Mark Curry had that point of view, that urban point of view that was the liaison to mainstream society. So what happens is you, you meet, you take meetings, and people get excited about you, and then they want to write you a check. And they want to write you a check that's bigger than any check that you've ever seen in your life. And back then, development deals for comedians, the checks were bigger than they are now, believe it or not. So it wasn't unusual for a guy to get a minimum of 150000 to a maximum of maybe $300,000. And some that I was involved in got checks for 500000 John DeResta got a check for $675,000 for his sitcom, which was the first sitcom on UPN. His point of view, he was a cop. He did a one-person show. It was a great point of view. It was on for a year. It got canceled. But So Mark Curry meets with a bunch of executives, including David Janelari is one of them developing, and they have a vision for Mark. A vision how to take that point of view and and go in a direction that will help garner a mainstream audience. A direction that succeeded, and the show went 100 episodes or more, went to syndication. They paired him up with a showrunner who has claimed the fame right now is that he is one of the few guys I know who's actually had three half-hour sitcoms that went to syndication. His name was Jeff Franklin. He had Hanging with Mr. Cooper, which was Mark's show, a Full House, 
And I forget the third one now. Yeah, me too. And so Mark gets this check. Let's just assume it's $250,000. Okay. And they say, hey, look, we want to take your comedy and make it more mainstream network television. And he has a choice. Well, do I do that? Do I take the check? I mean, I've never seen this much money in my life. I mean, can you imagine how much weed I can buy with this? <laughs> and uh, he takes the money. But what happens is when you take the money, whenever you take the money, if you're a studio president or if you're an artist, you take the money and you give up control. You have to answer to the man. Even if you're the president of a network, there's some other person in a nicer office with a nicer suit that's going to tell you what to do. When Sandy Grushaw was the president and chairman of Fox and 20th Studios, you'd think, who in the world is the president of both the studio and the network? God, this guy must be on air. He's got everything going for him. He's in so much control. No, there's Rupert Murdoch in an office somewhere with a better suit than he has, with more money. You know, Chris Rock used to have this great line. He used to say, you know, people think I'm wealthy. I'm not wealthy. I'm rich. Okay? Shaq is rich. I'm rich. Dr. Jerry Buss, he's wealthy. He writes the fucking checks. And so Mark took the money. They paired him up with a showrunner, Jeff Franklin, who it could be argued as mainstream and as close to a successful show on the Disney Channel kind of writer that you'll ever find in the business, but successful. And America loved it. And it was the kind of shows that he did that you could sit down with an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old and it would be great. And that was the philosophy for the development of David Janelari at the time and a lot of people. So Mark takes the show and the audiences that he had all over the country that used to come and see him, that he would sell out every show, the show got on the air and something strange happened. His audience abandoned him. But the mainstream audience would come to the comedy clubs. So now he'd start doing his shows, and now there's tons of white people in the shows and all mixtures of people in the shows. But his core audience that he had, that he built, that respected him and believed in him, didn't stay with him because they were disappointed in the choice he made to take his point of view and turn it into the show. And in their mind, I'm sure many times in his life, he heard the words, you sold out. And so at the end of the day, Mark went to syndication. He made a lot of money. He made millions of dollars as an actor. He made millions of dollars in the back end. He may not have any of that money left. But the fact is he made it. But what's fascinating that you learn in any profession when you take the check and you go against the philosophy of what you've been working towards and what's true inside and you go against things, you realize that to get another job is very difficult. To get your audience back is very, very difficult. And I've seen Mark throughout the years struggle he doesn't struggle as a stand-up comedian because when he goes on, he's still the same guy. And if you were ever see him on a show or a concert, 
And I, I actually implore you to go see him because he's one of the greatest stand-up comedians still to this day. But nobody knows it as much as they did back then because it's like when somebody goes to jail and they come out of jail, there's always this thing in the back of your mind, is he going to do that thing again and go back to jail? Should I trust that it's going to be this way or whatever? And your audience, when you defy your audience and you go against your audience, it's very hard to get them back. And then... The town only knows you as the guy who can do the soft material. They don't know you as anything else. So in the end, as an artist, you have a lot of choices. You can take the money or you can go down the road of respect and do things the way you want to do them. Like Louis C.K. is doing now. Now, granted, it took him 28 years to get to the point where somebody gave him the keys to the kingdom, and then they only gave him $3 million for 10 episodes to do it. But he got the keys. You know, John Stewart, when he started The Daily Show, you know, pretty sure after about a year, nobody from Comedy Central was giving him notes. Yeah. And so the thing is, is that remember when you're asked to do things and when people want you to do things and there's a check involved... If you take the check, know the consequences and know there's a chance that you may never get back to where you need to go no matter how hard you work. So if you're willing to do that and willing to take that risk and you know the odds, then go for it. But for the most part, stay true to yourself. Try to do everything you can to keep your vision and what you believe in. And chances are you will succeed in a much bigger way than you would if you took the big paycheck. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. 
I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just, I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I, I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A. and he said, you know, I got to meet you. So I met the guy and uh, I sat down. He told me that 10 years ago, he created a company called Global Cash Card, where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued. So I went online and I did some research and I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a, you know, medium, large company, whatever, and you have a thousand checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or 135 k a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor, go to globalcashcard.com, schedule a live demo on their system, Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And now the moment I've been waiting for, and hopefully you have as well, uh, where I introduce my guest, David Janilari. This is going to be long, so it's not going to be longer than the cold open. His career has spanned nearly three decades and he's been involved in the business from every angle you can imagine. He's gone from studio executive to president and co-chairman of his own company, Greenblad Janilari, to network president. He's done everything. His latest endeavor before his last endeavor was the president of MTV. He's going to tell you about what he's doing now, and I'm not going to spoil that for you. He came to uh, television through theater, which is kind of fascinating, and he worked with a lot of playwrights in New York and collaborated with them, like Wendy Wasserstein, the late Wendy Wasserstein, and young up-and-comers. Well, they were young men, Marta Kaufman and David Crane. Can you say friends? Can you say relationships? He spent seven years at Lorimar, and he got the opportunity to uh, work on the development of, as I said, Hang with Mr. Cooper and Living Single, among many, many other hits. He formed a company with the now president NBC Bob Greenblatt from 1998 to 2005, where he developed such incredibly uh, unique shows as Six Feet Under, American Family, and the Hughleys and One on One, as well as the Elvis miniseries, which garnered him Emmy nominations and Golden Globe nominations as well. He was one of the studio executives who helped get Friends on the air. He served as president of the WB Network in 2004. Most recently, before this venture, he served as president of MTV Networks. All I can say is that uh, I... 
when I read through this, it's like uh, it's like you've had a full life and you're a young guy. So well, we should just get into it right now. Please welcome my guest, David Janilari. Hello. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. I mean, it's incredible. When you listen to all these things, it's like, what do you think? When yeah, you're- it's kind of staggering, right? <laughs> it is. I guess I've been doing it a long time and, um, you know, very fortunately have, you know, gotten lucky a lot of times because I do believe that luck goes into is one ingredient in every single thing we do. Um, If it all doesn't come together in the right way, if something magical doesn't happen um, that's that's beyond your control, then it's you know, you can't really manufacture that 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 intangible ingredient. But that said, I've had fun making every show I've ever made. Um, I'm still excited about it, still trying to do it every day. You know, in my new gig um, over um, at Universal producing um, with that studio. And, um, you know, when you get a hit like Friends or Six Feet Under or, you know, any any or 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 hit on a small cable network like Awkward was for us at MTV. you know, or supernatural at, at um, the WB, which is still on the air nine years later. You, 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 that that gives you the satisfaction. That makes you keep going. That makes you want to do it again. Is it is it like? Is it like? I mean, not that I've ever done drugs, but is it like? <laughs> is, is it like? Uh, a, do you feel it's addicting? Like, do you feel like once you get a show that goes to syndication, instead of just going home and picking sand out of your toes in Malibu, you just say, hey, I got to get back and I need another fix. Yeah, you know what? It is It is a lot like that, especially when you come upon a hit that is a genuine kind of like audience favorite. And you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between, and you see it in people's eyes. It's all in their eyes. When they light up because they crave a show like Friends or are blown away by a show like Six Feet Under. You can see that kind of effect that that a show like that has on people. Um, And it's different than, you know, kind of a a medium hit. Medium hits are great. They keep the television business going. But it's those standout, gotta have, must see, kind of makes me crazy if I don't get my fix kind of show. That when that happens, and I've been fortunate that that's happened a couple times in my career, it makes you so excited to keep doing it and keep delivering, you know, what's the next show that's going to make the audience go crazy like that. Now, you mentioned luck. Now, I, I don't mean to go toe-to-toe with you here. Uh-oh. Because when I read all the things that you've been involved with, you know, I can see maybe if there's one thing that was luck, you know, maybe two but not like 73 different things here. So what do you, could you explain to our audience what you mean by, by luck? Yeah, I, I, I guess I mean that so many factors have to come together in, in, in each show from this, from the moment of the idea being born to the final product um, through, through the writing of it, through the casting of it, that at every juncture, one of, if one of those um, elements don't come together in the right way, you may not have a successful pilot or you may not have a successful series, right? If the casting isn't really right, if the writing doesn't really have a strong voice um, and a consistent voice. Um, and then there's other factors too. Like if the marketing 
doesn't work. If the if the network somehow didn't bring, for whatever reason, didn't bring the audience to the table, um, the critics play a little role. You know, so all of these kind of elements when you're developing and programming um, television shows, you have to kind of be on the ball and make and try to control every single one of those elements to the best of your ability. So that's why I say, you know, some luck definitely plays a part in in the kind of the coming together of it all you you hope hopefully you know you have enough kind of skills and creative um finesse to try to manage the you know the outcome to the best of your ability and to, you know in the case of comedians really mine what a comedian does and what his voice is and what his personality is and what he has to say and support that and put that, you know, put that together um, and surround him with, with the writers, the cast, the director, the right network, the the right place for the show to be on um, in a way that can, you know, ensure the best possible um, amount of success. You have to be able to talk that language and, and to, you know, work with talent and, um, help them feel comfortable and help them, um, do their best work and, 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 and aim towards the same goal of, of, of that, that perfect voice of that show, whatever that show is. But there's always some luck involved. I can't, I, 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 that's the only way I can describe it because otherwise, um, I'm not sure how I've been able to do it all this time. Well, I think one of the things also that's that's always interesting to to talk about when you're developing and you're doing things because you've been a network president, you've been a studio head, you've done you know you've done both situations. Now you have your own deal under and in NBC where you're working together with Bob yes. in a different capacity, yep. which is also fascinating that we're going to talk about. But <laughs> but I mean, I think that. If you were to look at all the shows that you did, that you had your fingerprints on and you were really in control of bringing to the marketplace, this is what's interesting about it. If I asked you with a true serum in your veins to say, okay, which show is the most uniquely original that I'm most proud of and the one that I, hey, listen, there was a need. They were asking for this kind of a show. I gave it to them. Get off my fucking back. <laughs> when I think of the one that you've been involved with in my mind, and it wasn't the biggest financial success, but the one that you did, which proves to me when you were with your own company, what you were really trying to do was six feet under. Because mm-hmm. to me, like, there has never been a show, there's not a template around from 1950 when I Love Lucy came until now to this year that uses that format and that template. There isn't a show that I've ever seen that had a cold open every Mm. week that was as original and unique and special. And I've said through my whole life to myself and to others, why the fuck don't they just release a digital version of just the cold opens? (laughs) Because if you're not familiar with the show, what was fascinating about it was each cold open was a unique and extraordinary death or deaths that drove the whole episode forward and was tied in in some way through the episode, even if in the tiniest sense. Mm -hmm. And 
I just I just think to myself, I mean, if you're ever going to have your name on a show or a movie, if you could just be involved in anything that people can say, hey, there's never been anything like it. Mm -hmm. To me, not to use a morbid expression, but to tie in the six feet under, when I die, I'm going to be a very, very happy man knowing that I was a part of that program. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not the discount friends, you know, because obviously friends is probably the most one of the most profitable, if not the most profitable sitcoms of all time. Mm -hmm. But friends had components of the other television shows. It wasn't a hundred percent like, you know, unique in the way it it came to where it was going. Mm -hmm. There was always the tension of guys and girls. Are they going to hook up? Are they not going to hook up? You know, are they hanging out? What do they do for a living? What do they do? You know, how, yeah. what? But there was something about that sexual tension and things and every character you had in Friends, the whole lane of that show in my mind was there was somebody in America that related this to one of the six characters. Mm -hmm. So if you watch the show, there was one character that you rallied around. Even if you didn't look like that character, they had the personality right. you were dealing with. And you channeled that through your life. Six Feet Under was a niche show that was just extraordinary and spectacular. So mm -hmm. I, in my mind, here I am, you're not doing it, but in my mind, I'm saying to you, out of everything you've ever done, to me, I think that like stands like almost at the top of the mountain. I'm not talking about money. I'm mm -hmm. talking about content. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Look, it's hard to totally kind of rank your babies, um, <laughs> as I'm sure you're you're aware. Um, you know, because there are different things that each show gives you, and that that the experiences that you gain through each show. I think you've singled out two of my favorites, um, and 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 two of the biggest success stories um, for different reasons. Um, I'll tell you, friends. Just to say one thing about it feels very. Sim not, not just simple, but kind of like ordinary in a way now. But when we put it on the air, people were terrified of it because there hadn't been a show done like that, especially at NBC, um, about 22-year-olds. And the powers that be, because remember what was on the air at the time was Cheers. We'd come off of Cheers, Taxi, Frasier was just coming on, Seinfeld, Mad About You. It was all like, you know, 30 to 50 year old people. Um, and they had, they were quite nervous about it. Um, how, how can we, as an 18 to 49 year old um, demo supplier, how, how are we going to get all of those people into the tent when it's all about six 22 year olds? I think their nervousness was probably appropriate given that they'd never done anything like that before. Um, but it did result in some challenging notes along the way to try to infuse the show with older characters and and you know um where's carla um tortelli the wisecracking waitress at the coffee shop where you know and coffee shop not house they didn't understand um coffee house at the time that said what they really did was they let the writers write their vision and and 
the the show is completely based on Marta and David's growing up in New York um, in their 20s and based on their real friends. So they knew what they were writing. They had a voice. They had a, they had a vision. Um, and but it, they they stuck to their guns and they stayed true to their vision and didn't let it get watered down and didn't let it get kind of pulled into a different direction, which was which was great. Now it feels commonplace because a lot of shows since then have have focused on on twenty year olds. Um, I, it's hard to believe that any network is worried about anything, and any network and now network presidents are worried about things because this is the thing about being a network president. And we just saw, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, Kevin Riley resigning from Fox, mm-hmm. and. It's, it's fascinating when somebody, and I'm using the quotes, resigns because normally if a guy is getting fired, he gets fired. It's not normal for a network to say, listen, you're going to probably get fired, so I'm giving the option to resign, but that never happens. So not knowing the facts of things, it's quite possible that Kevin realized that he couldn't get it done there the way he wanted to get it done because Mm -hmm. it was a place that the live action comedy for some reason where he you know that was a big lane for him granted he's in charge of the dramas too and the dramas coming like 24 now you know coming back the biggest thing you know a lot of great dramas but the things that have been going on have not like been like monster hits and so when you're a network president, you're like, okay, if I could just have one. But then when Kevin Riley was at NBC, he had five new shows on the air that were doing really, really well from My Name is Earl, 30 Rock. Of the Office. The Office. And then there was two uh, dramas uh, that I'm... Oh, Heroes, right? Heroes. Heroes thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. So, and then he gets fired. I know. Ugh. So it's like you could even do great work and get fired. The difference is that I tell every single person who's listening to this, just do great work. Because the fact is, if somebody does fire you, it doesn't matter because there'll be another person who will want to hire you. If you do shitty work, then you're not going to get hired. If you don't get anything on the air, you're probably not going to get hired. Yeah. Your credits, your credits go with you, you know, your successes, um, the shows you've been involved in, they, they go with you for the rest of your career. So do as, do as best work as you can and, and, and behave appropriately. You know, I mean, that's another real key. Well, that's another network president story, but that's, uh, we'll go into that. We'll go into that a little later. Just behave appropriately. That's, then that's true of every artist or every job you're in. You know, if you're, you know, chances are, if you're a lawyer and you're coming in hungover, uh, you're not going to last very long. Um, but the thing is, is that normally network presidents, they just do the best they can and they, and they, yeah, they want to hit. And but to to me, when I hear people are worried about having this or that on the air, shit gets canceled every day. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're a network president, no one. If, if you're a network president, and if you put everything on the schedule, and you actually believe that everything's going to be a hit, then you need to be put away <laughs> because you need to be put away in a pad because it's never happened in the history. <laughs> I tell you, one place it does it did happen. And I feel so bad for him in, in many ways. Uh, Bob Greenblatt, who uh, you were partners with, mm-hmm. before he went to NBC, he was at Showtime. 
And I remember one time, you know, I, 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 I go and pitch shows uh, often or occasionally, but for him, I would never pitch anything to him unless I knew that it, it was as, as good as humanly possible. I wouldn't go in with Drek because he was a guy like you just don't, you know, it's either going to be the, an A or it's not going to go. <laughs> And I went in with what I consider to be a great pitch. And, you know, he kept me there for a long time with his team and these people. And then at the end of the meeting, it was kind of comical. He said, uh, Barry, this is really, really great. You guys, this is great. Um, let me think about it. And left. And he called me back in the room. And I think, oh, I'm going back in the room. Wow. This is great. This is, a good, this is a good moment when they call you back in the room. <laughs> And I get back in the room, and he says, Barry, uh, sit down. I said, oh, yeah, what's up, man? He said, listen, this is great. Um, I just have something I need to tell you. I said, what is it? He said, um, I have no spots on Showtime. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you have no spots? What do you, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but everything's working. <laughs> Every show I have on the air is working and getting ratings and doing well and they're happy with. And I already have stuff that it's backed up in case something fails, but it's been I had to make options for them longer because I nothing's going away and I I can't do this show. I can recommend where you should take it or whatever, but I can't wow. do the show. Yeah. And I said, "Well, why why am I here? Why why do you come?" So, well, I'm a, I'm a president, but, you know. I got gotta bring things in. I gotta see what's you know out there, and I gotta know just in case maybe it's you know I should put it in a backup, do a backup, do a backup. And I thought that was fast. That was the only time that I know of anything ever winning. And then he goes to NBC and he realizes the reality. I'm of the guessing world. that's not the case right now. That's, right? that's not the case. We're guessing that's not the case, and that's why you have a deal there. Probably <laughs> exactly. make sure one of those things. Goes. Um, that's a funny story. That, by the way, that's a rare, rare story. Not what network other than that um, network at that moment could you ever think of that just had too much? They didn't need anything. I don't know. Never heard of that. So I'm going to go, if you don't mind, I'm going to just, at this point in the show, I'm going to go back. We're going to go way, way back. Uh oh Way, way back. So take me to where you were, whatever, your family life, where you were living, what kind of life you were living, and what the first thing that you saw or that was an inspiration to you that you wanted to be in the entertainment business. Um. I remember it very clearly. Um, I was I wanted to be a movie director. Um, I grew up thinking, you know, falling in love with movies, watching every movie I could, uh, and being inspired by you know people like Spielberg and people like Coppola and just some of the great filmmakers of our time. Now, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. the first if I believe the first movie from Spielberg that I ever saw that inspired me was a television movie. It was almost like a one-act play like, as a television movie. Duel? Duel. Duel was great. With Dennis that Weaver. That was awesome. Yeah, I, I watched and, it many times. And for those of you who never even know what we're talking about... <laughs> Go see it. Get on your okay. digital device and download it. Duel. 
I bet it still holds up except for the clothing. Movies like that, movies like, um, you know, Hitchcock and just some of the great auteurs of our time. Um, growing up in, you know, middle class suburban Rhode Island and um, not really having much of a city exposure. Um, I, f- I figured out when I went to college, um, once I graduated high school, that I wanted to be in, in the film and television business. I didn't know how. I didn't have any connections. I don't know anybody that's ever worked in, in the business. I'm from the smallest state in the country. Um, I figured I'd better go to a, a, a somewhat big city and, and, and start, start out. And so, what town in Rhode Island did you grow up? West Warwick, right in the West middle. West Warwick. No, right? no, one, no one would really know it, I, I don't to, think. I used to book this comedian, Tom Gilmore, and he used to have this routine, you know, uh, you know, it's a different mentality growing up in, in Rhode Island. It's a, you know, it's a big, you know, organized crime presence. It's like, you know, you, you turn on a newscast in Massachusetts, it's a little different. You know, the, the mayor is uh, dealing with uh, the school system. The trash uh, uh, people may strike. Uh, the There's going to be a, an election here in the, whatever the, it is, you know, Worcester, Massachusetts. You turn on a Rhode Island radio station, it's a little bit, or a TV station, a little bit different. The bullet riddle body of Anthony Abendanza was found decomposing in the back of a late model four today and what police describe as a possible gangland slam. So it's That's like funny. a different That's a different funny. kind of thing there. So yeah. so, um, were you, so well, you were in the suburbs. I was in the suburbs. Okay. I didn't, you know, and it was a it was a quieter time back in the 70s and 80s and um, but it but it is notoriously um, one of the most mafia controlled states in the country. It rivals the New York um, families in in a lot of ways. If the light is on you a certain way, you kind of look like a mob boss. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> that huggable, um, lovable, yet yeah, beautiful. That kill buddy you. CNC, that <laughs> corrupt mayor. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I went to um, I, I went to Boston College thinking that would be a good way to um, get my feet into um, living outside in in a bigger city and to start. I, I went to study communications. That was the program they had there, and I realized a uh, one year into it that if I really wanted to get into the film and television business. Um, I needed to kind of go much more hardcore for for that training. So, you know, I went to NYU Film School, which is, you know, one of the top three um, film schools in, in our country. And that was where not only did I get my kind of real first education in in how it all works and, and you know, from the creative, you know, from literally pa- pasting um, film together and splicing it together with glue to, um, you know, shooting and, and, and directing and, and uh, working with lighting and all the kind of real technical stuff. Again, thinking I was going to be a, a movie director. Had no idea how I was going to get there, but um, I want to make movies. Um, then I got an internship at the Nederlander um, organization while I was in school. And so I always kind of say it was that internship through which I kind of fell into television and never kind of looked back. I worked, I worked with them for four years, four plus years. 
um, and kind of worked my way up until I was, you know, the head of development. So I was actually de- developing and and selling. And did they ever get anything on the air? No, we we made a couple TV movies, but that was back when when the TV movie business was very big. So you could, you know, with all the tax credits and everything, you you could make a good um, chunk of money on a two hour movie. Um, but I was trying to get us into the comedy business even even back then, and that's why I was working with writers like Wendy and Chris Durang and. Um, uh, Marta and David, um, Lanford Wilson. I mean, all of them. But what was it that was the inspiration for comedy? Because the movies that you were watching, Hitchcock, mm-hmm. Spielberg, those were not comedy movies. No, no. So what was the influence in comedy? What took you in that path? Was there somebody you saw, something you did, or what? You know, I think it was... The writers that were mainly in New York at the time, coming off of the stage, were mainly kind of comedic writers. Peter Tolan was a baby writer of back course. then. I was working with Peter him Tolan when he was, was the te- uh, showrunner and executive producer with Dennis Leary for Rescue Me, among many many other shows. Yeah. He he was um he was performing with his partner Linda Wallum back then. They did kind of a Nichols and May kind of stage act and uh Martin and David were writing, you know, off-Broadway shows. Um I, I, the list goes on. I'm blanking on some of them. Alan Kirschenbaum, I first worked with when I was Alan the late Alan Kirschenbaum. Phil Rosenthal, I worked with. We and just yeah. did the podcast. Oh yeah. Oh, great. he must have been funny. It was He's fun. great. It was great. <laughs> um, yeah. So so what happened was I started to um, just like meet all these writers. They tended to gravitate towards c- comedy. Um, it wasn't, but it's it's a good question because it wasn't a plan. I never sat down and said. I feel like I'm a comedy executive. I I always thought I was a movie maker. And I think that kind of big picture attitude has played a role in my in all the shows I've done, being able to look at it, it from a director's point of view, from a producer's point of view. That I think has been consistent with how with how I've always looked at the business and what I wanted to do. But the comedy thing is totally accidental. When I first moved out here, I my first job out here was as the director of comedy development at the Fox Network. This is what I try to understand. And for those of you listening, which is hard to uh, figure out how a guy who spent four years at a company in developing television and never got a show on the air is getting offered a job at Fox for comedy development. And... I will share with you one of the odd things is that this is a business of failure. It's always been a business of failure. Within the failure, there's the successes that are amazing. It's like going to Las Vegas. When you win a big jackpot, it's like the memory that you have forever. But if you were to write down all the plays you made before that then lost... It would be like, you know, 95% of them lost and 5% of them won, but you remember the five that won. And so people are cognizant of the fact of how hard it is. And if you're dealing with great minds in television, the person's personality and persistence and their and their drive overcomes the fact that they didn't get anything going because in their mind is... The reason why you didn't get anything going with the Nederlanders is nobody really believed that they could do a television show and nobody believed that they could. Even though everybody has to do something one time for the first time, everybody in the world has to do that. Still, it's a cold town. 
and they look at that and they say, hey, well, let's interview him. And if he does a great interview and he shows us that he's got this thing, we will discount that, which they did. And they brought you on. Yeah. I mean, I had, you know. It, uh, Who was the president then? P- Peter Chernin was the Peter president. Chernin. And it is, it's also where I met Bob Greenblatt. He was the director of um, drama. So he and I were the junior level um, executives. Then, if I remember, there was a great guy who was a brilliant guy who was the head of casting, Bob Huber. Oh, yeah. Bob Harbin or Bob Huber? Bob, Har- Bob Harbin Bob, was there. Bob Harbin. Bob Harbin, and he brought in Bob Huber. That's right. Who then stayed, I think, a lot longer after yeah. Bob retired. But those two were oh, like, yeah. uh, I mean, the thing is, is that when you notice certain things about networks, you really want to, you know, they always say, if you want to learn about a, a man, meet his kids. You want to learn about a network. Meet the head of casting <laughs> and the people who are involved in the casting. Look at how long they've been That's there. Okay? If they've been there a long time, that means that there's something happening there that's really special. Like, for instance, ABC Disney, there was a guy there. I mean, they had literally the guy had to drag himself out to the, to the, to the country <laughs> to get away from everything because he kept big getting pulled back. It was a guy named Gene Blythe. Yeah. And Gene was a guy that just never got fired that every regime there were 17 different regimes still there Mm -hmm. and a lot of times you look in casting and one of the things you do as a network president which you've been you come in a lot of times if you really are honest with yourself you just want to get rid of everybody even (laughs) if they're nice people you just want to just let me get rid of everybody let me bring in my people Mm. and Always, no matter what personality the network president is and how angry or how happy or how good they are, you watch. If there's a great, they, they're just like, ah, I want my own casting person, but fuck, I can't get rid of that person. That person's like, I can't get, yeah. there's no way. I got to keep that person. Hey, and casting the, is, and is like those kind of people. over half of what what matters, right? What what you who goes on the screen is kind of like how you're judged. So and the other half, and the other half is writing, right? There you go, right? Right? I think. I think you're right. <laughs> so you're at Fox, uh, Peter Chernin. Now, what I what I know about Peter Chernin mm-hmm. and Barry Diller and Sandy Grushaw, which I learned from Sandy, was that the philosophy of those executives was a fascinating philosophy. It was a contrarian philosophy. Yes. <laughs> In other words, you got Cosby on Thursday on NBC, oh, let's let's take the Simpsons and move them up against Cosby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, everybody else is doing regular sitcoms? Let's put animation on. And so it was that philosophy. Yeah, I mean, they were looking to really be noisy and really be kind of break out in a world where there was only at that time three networks right so who knew if it would work first of all there was a lot of skepticism about about that network and i want to be sure you came in like right at the at the how long had the network been around it had been around several years the first incarnation was um with kevin wendell and garth Ansier. Yeah. And a couple other people, um, it was, but it was a small group. Um, and then I think Peter came in as the second president after, after Garth and Kevin um, left. But Barry was still there. Um, Barry Rupert Diller was still there. Yeah. Um, 
Sandy Grushow was the head of marketing and would sit at the opposite end of this giant conference table every Tuesday morning at a at a, the Tuesday morning meeting where you all you had to wear white shirts and ties. So you've got 50, 60 guys, mostly guys, some women, all wearing white white shirts what and ties. What did the women have to wear? I don't remember if they had to wear white, but I'm sure it was in the same t- I'm sure it was very similar. Um and Barry Diller would sit on one end with Peter Chernin and Jamie Kellner. He was course, there. Yeah. And Sandy Grushow would sit on the other end, a long table, like longer than this room. And pretty long. And we would just watch the Sandy and Barry show because they <laughs> would just go back and forth across the table and yell. And argue and be contrary, and it was you know I, to a 27 year old kid from Rhode Island. I was sitting here going, "What the hell is this? I, 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 this is no one taught you this in school. I didn't see that coming." <laughs> tell our audience about one <laughs> argument that you could tell us about over one show or some philosophy that you remember. You know, I remember one. Oh, I, it, it actually. I think Sandy was was involved in it. Um, it was. It, I remember the argument over what should we call nine hundred two one zero, because it was a marketing challenge from fr- from the point of view of the title. Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero was a mouthful, and it was the it was the marketing the then marketing exec Chris Pula who came up with the idea. Let's just call it nine hundred two one zero. That's that's going to be what it's referred to as, and there was a long argument conversation um which Barry was very contrary over about how can we just call it 90210 what does that mean how will the world know what that means that was one example and ironic <laughs> and, and what's weird is that Sandy grew up across the street from Beverly Hills 90210 high school yes i think he went to it and he went to I it i think yeah Crazy um, was that? So, it, so you're the head of a uh, comedy there. So I'm, oh, I'm the junior level, the runt who's of comedy. You? The, the head of comedy was Lilla McCarthy. Did Lilla, you know Lilla, who's now a TBS. Yeah, yeah. And I have um, some development with her now. It's cool. fun. Relationship. Full circle. Full Relationship. Circle. Um, so, you know, it, I, was, I was there for two years. I was there... The Simpsons was in the can, but I was there when we launched it, um, and I I remember how the kind of halo effect of that of that show working so brilliantly really kind of changed the, the the internal feel at the network. Up until then, there there weren't a lot of there was the noisiness of Married with Children, and there were some real quality shows like the Tracy Ullman show. Um, but well, when I was there, um, the Simpsons came on, and Living Color came on, wow. and kind of changed the, changed the landscape. And then um, in the and those were not really born out of. Th- the um the group that was there when I was there they were kind of um had already been in the works um but we we were able to we were able to get some respect in the town at that point people were people were thinking oh maybe there is money to be made here um off network with some of these shows um and you know we we attracted a lot of um a lot of talent and um you know it was about two years into the um the run there um when Les came to me and said said hey come on over how about you come to Lorimar um he, um and help me get into comedy and i said yeah 
great. Why do you think he came to you now? And this is interesting also because you know when you're doing something right in any profession. For instance, if you're a, let's say you're a young comedian working in a city somewhere. Let's say it's in L.A. or wherever it is. You're going to know if you're doing the right thing because people are going to find you. They're going to come after you. And you see, like, you look at a show like... I'm not going to say that the show is the next coming of uh, Friends or, or, or 69, but you look at a show like Undateable. You got, uh, there's a comedian on that show uh, who, if you are a comedian, you know of this guy as a guy who certainly wasn't uh, lighting the world on fire, headlining comedy clubs and theaters all over the place. I believe I pronounced his name correctly, and Ari, you'll uh, tell me if I'm wrong, Ron Funches. Okay, so Ron is a guy who's what? He's working spots at the comedy store. I don't even know if he goes on the road and got paid doing shows. I mean, if he did, he went on the road as maybe a middle act or something. Um, yet, he goes in. People find him. They put him up for an audition for the show. And he works his muscle and his magic in that area, which is a very different muscle. And he gets the gig. And if you're a young comedian or an old comedian or anywhere in between, you know how hard it is to get an acting job on television. If you're an actor who went to Juilliard, you know how hard it is to get a job on television. But the fact is, is that he proved that he could go into a room and book the job. And but that's a rare occasion. Mm -hmm. And so you're in the situation where. You're developing comedy and you're putting things together and he's less Moonbez is coming after you. He's calling you. You're taking not, me to breakfast. You're not calling him. No. He's no. calling you. Yes. Because like Ron Funches, people were taking notice of your skill set. Or something. I mean, or just taking notice that I was, you know, behaving decently for with them to them, um, seeming to be helpful. I mean, it, it is ironic. I ha so here's now the I'll be going to the third job, right? And I really haven't put anything on the air. I can't really claim any um, responsibility for being behind. Maybe Herman's head, but even that was like what? That was a mild hit, right? Not a not But very original show. Yeah, yeah. Which we, we took a chance. It was it was but but other than that, I you know, I I had known Les a couple times in meetings because he would come to pitch meetings. Um and we made some pilots with Lorimar when I was at Fox. So, you know, but I didn't really know him. We didn't we didn't really hang out and we didn't really, you know, you know, ever, you know, really spend time. When Les so, came to a pitch meeting, now you've been you've been in many pitch meetings in your life. Of course, you've been in meetings where you pitched the less in your career, but you are one of the few people in the world that actually less pitched to you. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. What was he like in a pitch meeting? Was he a guy who just respectfully teed it up and then didn't speak until the end, or was he a guy who was very involved in the pitches? No, I think he was really, um, you know, the the kind of leader of the of the meeting but not not stepping on the writer's toes um he would he would kind of be enthusiastic um very good at pointing out why something you know from a sales point of view why something is a good idea for us to buy but not um 
not like overpowering. He was great. He I'm going to take a guess of why he made that call and took you out to breakfast. Okay. And you might not even know this, and you might disagree. For those of you who don't know, when you when you're in when you're pitching a show to a network, what normally happens are a few different things. Number one, you walk in, and there is a maybe a five minute period that's like could be ten. That's the warm up. You're just sitting around talking. What have you been doing? What's happening? How's it going? What's the, some of the things you've been working on? Whatever. And and there's a point in time during that thing where if the network executive uh, is tired of the warm-up, he'll say, so what do you got for me today? <laughs> and then if the people pitching the show really don't have much more to talk about and they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable and they're, they'll just say, okay, so uh, well, let's let's tell you what we got. And then they go and they uh, normally the person who comes with them, either the agent or the production um, head guy will set it up and say, hey, I just want to tell you, uh, you know, you know, I met uh, whatever. I met Marta Kaufman and David Crane in New York. Uh, we had fun. I used to go to their plays there. I thought they were really talented, a great take on the world. And they have this great thing that they came up with, sort of models after their life, which I think is the best way to have a successful show. If you can find something that comes from somebody's life, and I think you're really going to enjoy this, and 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 I'll let them tell it to you. And so there'd be that some kind of intro like that. And then you know Marta and Dave and their third partner who escapes Ke- me now, Kevin, Kevin Bright, Kevin Bright would pitch the show. And normally, what happens if there's a group of people pitching in the show? One person is responsible for talking about the story. One person's responsible for interjecting about the characters. So when they mention the character, and well, Phoebe is like, and then, you know, Marta would go off. Yeah, Phoebe is the kind of woman who's a little offbeat, this and that or whatever. And then she'll stop. And then the next person will go. Mm-hmm. And then if there's three people in the room, they'll have another responsibility. Sometime to wrap up how they see the, maybe they're the person who says, hey, this is what we see for the first 13 episodes. This is what we see for this. And then what happens at the end of the meeting is what I think the reason why Les took you out to breakfast. Because you always know you're with a great executive if they really are present. And they, all of them, they always have this pad of paper with them. <laughs> and they're always writing down what you're doing, even though you're giving them something like an outline or something when you leave. I don't know why they write down. I don't get it. I don't I understand. Don't get it. But they do it. <laughs> And they always are trying. It's like a philosophy. And and at the end, what a great executive will do, will they'll ask you very important questions like, well, what's the relationship between Phoebe and Ross? How do they because I didn't in the pitch, I didn't see how anything's what's happening with this. Do they ever um, the central perk thing, this coffee? Sh- or, or, I mean, I don't know of any places like that. Could you let me know how you visualize this? Yeah. Um, I noticed that nobody seems to have any jobs, yet they have the most beautiful apartment in New York City that would cost about $10,000 a month. Could you could you explain that to us and how that's going to come across in the series? No one ever asked that. <laughs> and, so, and so David would be a guy who would be asking these questions of Les and the writers. And if he asks appropriate questions that are valid, which no one else asks and are really incredible how you can see it and how you can explain it, 
Les would then be like, man, this guy really has an understanding of television. And I, I, I really, he took me to task there. I mean, I thought I came in prepared and he asked that, that, and that. And that's probably one of the reasons why. It's it's definitely possible. Um, we we certainly when we when we talked about the job and and met, got along famously immediately. You know, not really having known each other other than sitting in a pitch meeting together. Um, and still to this day, he's one of my favorite people, my absolute mentor, and um and a great guy. Great, great to me. Great to hang out with. I, I uh, he has been a huge influence on on my on my um career and my my life but because he really gave me the chance to take a job and run with it like he was, that was the first time i was given a department a go make something happen kind of challenge and that was fun and what are some of the things you made happen tell me the first thing that you got going that actually got in the air for a significant amount of time and it got on and you were like Holy shit, I can do this. I've got a hit on my hands. I, I, what, what was well, your... uh, let's bring it back full circle. My first show was Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it, and it, it's really bringing me back because um, that was a really wonderful experience. Tell, um, tell us how it came together in your own way because I, you know, I had my opinion of, of what was going on. And, and You know, it came together because I loved Mark's um um, you know, stand up Mark's act and his personality. He's just a nice guy. Um, ABC felt the same way. And it was very, it came together very late in the development season, as I recall, because I, I remember being at the Warner, at the Lorimar Christmas party. Um, so this was sometime in December out on the lot, a kind of afternoon thing. And I had to leave because I was being pulled in because we had to make this Mark Curry deal. We had to close this Mark Curry deal. And if we closed the Mark Curry deal, then it was looking like Jeff Franklin would jump on board. And that was kind of like, that was what everyone wanted to happen, right? That was the marriage that made sense for, for the network, for us, I think for Mark too. I think they, they had met and liked each other. Um, so imagine we started to write a script, like maybe right after Christmas. It's, it doesn't happen like that and anymore. Just to let our audience know, <laughs> normally traditional development starts after the upfronts, after everybody takes like a two to one month break away from the world. So the upfronts are normally in the middle of May where they announce the shows, or should I say the announcements, the announcements, mm -hmm. and for the big networks. And then people just take off and decompress normally they'll start to take meetings around now um until about thanksgiving you'll there'll be people will be buying and people will always say hey you know in september hey nbc's closed nobody's ever fucking closed okay <laughs> if something's great nobody's closed and what happens is occasionally after thanksgiving there might be a little money left or something for something because you're only doing a script deal at that point, and what happens is normally this is the way it works. You you commission a script if you're a network president, unless of course you're you know Steven Spielberg. You come in and you say, listen, you're either going to give me the series or you're not, and call it a day. Or Lauren Michaels now or something. Mm -hmm. It's like you're either going to give me the commitment for thirteen or uh, or get the fuck out of here. I'm going someplace else. But for the most part, you get commissioned a script, they write a script, and then between Christmas 
and January or in that time somewhere, normally all the executives are reading and then you'll get the call when they come back. We're either going to do a pilot or we're not going to do a pilot. Uh, they had confidence in Jeff Franklin because he was prolific. He could write a script very quickly. And they believed that he had the point of view of this guy. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and they did that. There's, there's other exceptions that are crazy exceptions. For instance, like Two and a Half Men, if you speak to Eric Tannenbaum, who's the executive producer, that actually was written in February. And the deal was done in February. And you have to finish your pilots by the end of April. Mm -hmm. And that show is probably the third most successful yeah. show on television yeah. uh, behind uh, a show called, I think, Friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so 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 you, you do that thing. So, right, so we do, so we do that. We, we're, so we're going to get the script in late. Um, you know, I think, as uh, as I recall, this was so many years ago, um, the script came in. It was like almost there. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't completely there but Jeff had been producing Full House for years and you know the process of producing a multicam show is you do a lot of work in that week you do a lot of work when you get to the stage and you put it on its feet and you rewrite all all through those five days so so no one was really daunted by by the, by the fact that we had to get it there we had to cast it and then we had to put it up on its feet and we'd, we 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 would fine tune it as we went along Although, as I recall, I, th I think the network balked for a minute at at and and we ended ended up making a deal that made this made it made a presentation of the show very economically um, affordable for both the studio and the network. And how that normally happens is, uh, as David probably would share with you, in order to make it economically feasible at that point in time. What you do is you would utilize a set from an existing mm -hmm. television show that was on the air. Chances are, if it was Jeff Franklin, they probably used a full house set or something of that right. nature. Right. I think it wasn't the full house set, but it was something, something in like the, that, uh, that so, was a standing. So yeah. you have it on there. Normally, the budget of something like that, putting the set together, is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sometimes it can be as much as a million dollars just to get the sets the way you want them because it was a crazy time. It doesn't cost as much now, believe it or not, but it did, mm -hmm. did then. So that saves an enormous amount of money, and that was what was called a presentation back then instead of a pilot, which was a full pilot where you got to have their set design. You got to do everything the way you wanted to do it, the prop master here, you're using the props the way they have them. Yep. I'm sorry, keep no, going. No, you're right. So we made it, and I remember when we went to the table. The table read. The table read, right? So we do the table read of the pilot. We're all cast. Um, Jeff's got a bunch of writers around. I think Warren and Rensler, who were his right hands on Full House, whole bunch of whole bunch of writers. Um, I remember Mark, who is a comedian, um, was ad-libbing and adding stuff at the table and getting big laughs. And we would we would once in a while look over to Jeff Franklin, who was just writing, <laughs> writing down everything that Mark was saying. And it, you could see it was going to be a really good collaboration um, that Jeff knew that he has a... Con Mark had a comic voice that if he mined that and let him... brought it out in him and let him be who, who he is on stage, um, it would be successful. And ultimately... It was. And that and that's a really difficult balance when you're a studio executive or a network president or anybody in your the audience that's listening. And if you're a writer and you're writing comedy, this is one of the hardest things you have to do to be successful is to put your ego aside. Yes. 
you write the script as best you can and you have the working knowledge if you're working with a comedian that they're going to ad lib and they're going to add lines and those lines are going to be funnier than your lines <laughs> but you have to understand that he wouldn't be able to comment on your lines if you didn't give him the template mm-hmm your value is huge. You've created the story. You've created the lines. You've created the place where he says the line. The thing you just didn't do is create that one particular joke there that's the best joke for that point. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of showrunners who rebel against stand-up comedians, mm. and they try to do things, and they're like, look, just do it my way first on the set. Now do it a second time, and the last take, I'll let you do your line. And sometimes you have people like that or things like that. I remember Jay Moore on a show that was on two years on CBS with Les Boonves, uh, Gary Unmarried. Mm-hmm. The average show, there were 15 lines that he added the night of taping that ended up in the show. Uh-huh. It was like amazing yeah. because, again, you know, and, and at first they were like, eh. but then they got more accepting and they realized that this was a good, yep. good way to go. And so... When did you know that show was a hit? Um, you know, it. I think it premiered pretty strong out of the gate. As I recall, they it was either launched behind Full House or behind Home Improvement. I think it was Home Improvement, which was the top show of the um, of 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 the of all networks. I think at that time, certainly of ABC. And I think it, I think it spent a year behind Home Improvement, and then they moved it to Friday night to, into the TGIF block um, for most of its run. Um, I, I, you never know when it's a real hit, and until you know the numbers come in. What I remember was seeing the pilot cut together, the the, the first cut. Um, we screened it. Jeff came over, and we screened it in Leslie's office. And it was really good. It just really worked. Um, he, you know, all the right performances were got, were, were used all the right um, jokes so that it was really funny and really likable. He was great. Mark was great. Never acting in anything in his I life. I know. I know he was in, he was, he was a natural. Um, so, you How know. How many African-American shows were on ABC at that time? Or on I, television? I think only Family Matters, maybe, um, at the time. And on tel- not not much um, on the landscape at the time, cool. but yeah, that was a great experience. That, and that was my first first experience um, w- with um, adapting a com- a comedian's kind of act and his and his point of view, and that that carried through a lot of my um, a lot of my career. Yes, it did. <laughs> and so, and then there you did Living Single and uh, a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me what else you did there before you went on to your next thing. Right. Um, yeah. It, the next year was Living Single, which we developed for Queen Latifah and um, Kim Coles as a vehicle for them. That that went on after Martin on Fox, which was a big hit for them. And that, that became a big hit that ran six years or seven years. Um, the next year, I think, is when I did Friends. Um, and that worked. And... <laughs> And um, then after that, I did the Drew Carey show on ABC, which was, again, just ripped from Drew's head, you know, Drew's act, Drew's life. And um, was also a success that ran, I think, seven years or so. Um, 
Then I did Suddenly Susan, um, which was a... Kathy, that was about uh, Brooke Shields it was and Brooke Kathy, Shields, yeah. Kathy Griffin. And that, you know, ran for four or five years, made some money. Um, it, it was on the NBC lineup, one of the, you know... Um, uh, and... Um, then I, I oh the other the other thing I did while I was at Lorimar became became, became Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, we I was there when the when the WB started, so I ended up putting a lot of shows on the um, on the WB network at the beginning. Um, the Wayans Brothers show. Um, Robert Townsend did a show called The Parenthood. It's the Wayans Brothers show, by the way, for those of you uh, listening. In terms of comedians, um, <laughs> I want to say this the right way. There is a fact that I think is a strong fact is in the history of television, there is no show starring a stand-up comedian in the number one position on the call sheet in history that has ever gone to syndication with a comedian that has been doing comedy less than 10 years. Really? I don't believe it's ever happened except for one time. And that one time is a situation where Marlon was not doing stand-up comedy, but Sean was like an open mic comedian or comedian not making much money, similar to Ron Funches, (laughs) and paired together with his brother. And that show went four or five years and went to syndication. Yep, yep. Now, granted, I don't know if you count it because he's with his brother, <laughs> but I will count it because uh, it did work for them and it did uh, work. And, of course, you had the magical comedy support of uh, John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon, yep. The, who is a human highlight he film. Was he's the, like the Dominique Wilkins of, 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 of comedy. He guy. was the anchor. He was the thing that held it together. He was so awesome and those Sean and Marlon were just so what I loved about them were they were fearless they were just all about how funny can we be how how can we really you know push the envelope and it was it it, it helped launch the WB it was really the and there were comedians that came in and out of that and again African-American comedy is is forming your lane. You got I was going to say, I did, and I got, did the Jamie Foxx show, too, right, when nobody knew who Jamie Foxx was, and that was another real anchor for launching the WB, um, all of those shows. So if um, I were an edgy stand-up comedian right now and you were in the front row and you were telling me all these things, I would say, my God, you're like the Underground Railroad of, a, <laughs> yeah. of, of comedy. How, how do I get on? You're like, you're like the Harriet Tubman of folks. <laughs> Comedy, you like get it going, you make it happen through all obstacles. Even when people are throwing shit at you, you still make it happen. It's unbelievable. That's funny. Um, you just—I was lucky enough to be in business with with such talented people. I mean, I mean, they're, they're just, just hilarious you, you, you look, people. You look at all these people, and they're just—it's incredible. So you're you're experiencing all this success, and things are going great, and you're at one hit after another, and then you leave. I know. Why? You would, yeah, you would, you would question that, right? Um, you know what? I, Bob and I had stayed friends over, um, over the time that I went to Warner Brothers. And in fact, we put shows on the air, on the air cause he stayed at Fox. So we stayed in, in, in a business relationship, um, as kind of pro- supplier and, and buyer. And we stayed friends. Um, and we just kind of, at the time we looked around and we kept feeling there was a better way to do this. 
And by that, I mean, we were, we were living in a volume world of really trying to do too much every year, trying to, you know, throwing a lot up and hoping a bunch of, a bunch of them would land. And we kind of wanted to step back and say, could we do it in a much more selective way? Could we make it more productive for the writer, more productive for the creative um, force that we would get in business with if we you know, could concentrate on a few less things, really let them feel protected and not like one piece in a big studio system. A little bit the old MTM um, model and a little bit the Carsey Warner model um, to some degree. And so we we just wanted to try we wanted to try it in a way that wasn't like volume 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 volume. Now, I think there could have been another reason. Mm-hmm. Another reason being is you have all these shows going. You're responsible to help develop them. You see all the press. You know, Friends syndicated for eight hundred million dollars. <laughs> ICM buys Learjet. Um, all these shows, the company bottom line, you see the advertising, you know, Warner Brothers this or making this much money and you're a television executive and you make your salary and then at the end of the year you get your bonus, which a lot of times can be at the discretion of the person who is running the department. And, you know, maybe when Friends has their first profit statement, your bonus check is a little bit bigger than when hanging with Mr. Cooper had their <laughs> first bonus. But chances are your bonus isn't more than your salary. Chances are your bonus might not be half your salary. So you look at all the millions and millions of dollars that these people are making and you say to yourself with Bob, you know what, we can do this and... We can get a great mm -hmm. business affairs lawyer to protect us in the deals, <laughs> and we can get the majority of the back end. And then when we get a hit, all that money isn't going to them. It's going to go to us. That is certainly um, <laughs> that is certainly a, a, a reasonable assessment of the business model. Does yes. that have a little bit <laughs> yeah. to do with it? You know, yeah. It, I think everything we do in this business has a little bit to do with. Ooh, are we going to hit the jackpot? Ooh, are we going to, you know, are we going to, you know, make the um, make the big kill? Um, but honestly, and not to sound like all too, you know, um, Pollyanna, it, it really was about how do we make how do we make shows and have more control over making shows that we want to make and that we want to be involved with? How do we not take a check and start our own thing and then at least we're controlled when we do take the check? Right. That, that was a part of the theory. And, and again, it was, it was all about how do we do it for ourselves and just try something different. We were both really getting burnt out on that, that big kind of like volume network studio, stu studio play. And the first hit or the first thing you got going that you considered a success at Greenblatt Janelari. By the way, did you guys flip a coin for who got I lost. I lost. You did flip a coin? No. no. How did that come about? Uh, it's like alpha when, alphabetical. It's like, when, <laughs> it's like when you're a young person and you're coming to town and you're like getting that apartment and you don't haven't really seen the apartment yet. There's two bedrooms and there's always one bed 
bedroom that's smaller than the other and shittier and not close to the bathroom. And then there's the other bedroom that's this really nice bedroom. And you get there and you're like, who's going to get that bedroom? Who's going to get it? Is it going to be the person that's going to pay a little more or what's going to happen? So how did that come about? It completely. Random. I think we did say ultimately we said alphabetical. We also liked the sound of it better. Um, we toyed with a lot of different ideas. Um, Peter Chernin, who who made our first deal and put put us kind of in business, he really, really, really wanted us to call it Green Alari, <laughs> and, and to the point that he would he would mock up um, m- mock up posters of that and send them over to our. Office. And we were like, no, I think we ultimately decided to go the way of you know what we're trading in on our our own reputations, our own uh, set of relationships, and our names. So we just went with. <laughs> went with our names and I I, I went second. <laughs> That's okay. You got the and title card. Yeah, Nothing wrong with exactly. <laughs> so tell me the first thing that, that you together that you were really you know, that really got going and it was was a hit. The first show out of the gate was um was the Hughleys and it was Here we go again <laughs> with the uh, African American comedians. I know, and, I know, but they're you know what talented ones. I mean yes. we, I, I was I think I've been fortunate to Getting business with really talented ones, and Chris Rock was a producer on that as well. It was Chris that had brought it, brought DL to um, to his manager's kind of attention yeah, at the time, and thought that the idea was really, really funny, and 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 he helped us get it launched and and um and get it made. Um, and and DL had a really honed fabulous take on him and his family living in the suburbs. It was almost all true. It was like literally he just would tell us stories about his his um his life out in um I don't even know where it was, Calabasas or something. And it just was, you know, relatable but hilarious. And and ultimately we took that pitch around to four networks. All four wanted it. ABC ended up stepping up to episodes. Back, remember those days when they would do that? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, when somebody really wanted something, they'd say, okay, listen, we'll guarantee you six now or 13. Now, when they guaranteed it, just so you know, that was a penalty mm-hmm. uh, for our audience, just so you know. They weren't guaranteeing the fee to produce the entire television show from the set decorator to the casting director, whatever. What they were guaranteeing was the artist's fee, DL's fee. They were guaranteeing the studio's executive producer fee, and they were guaranteeing if one of the managers or whatever, or the showrunner, whatever their situation was a fee. That was the guarantee as a penalty. So what that meant is if they didn't put it on the air, you were going to get paid for the episodes that they guaranteed one way. It was your assurance like, hey, this is extra insurance that they're going to put it on because they don't want to take the loss. What you realized uh, later on in your life is that they can afford to take any losses. (laughs) And if they hate the show, you know, Eddie Murphy and Brandon T. Jackson can do a show. And that doesn't get on. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had a show this year that didn't get on. You, It doesn't matter. They'll pay the penalty if they don't like it. They yeah. don't like it. That's true. And so that's um, cool. So the Hughleys got on. and It and got on. And it, it, it's also um, kind of an interesting story. It ran for two years on ABC and then was dropped um, because that was the, um, the time period where 
um, who wants to be a millionaire was taking over the, their schedule. Do you remember this time yes. where they literally scheduled who wants to be a millionaire three or four nights across five at one time? Maybe right, and and so they like basically got out of the sitcom business for that for that minute. We were one of the um, casualties of that, but. Um, Tom Noonan uh, was running the uh, UPN network at the time and grabbed it and, and gave us another two or three years um And which normally UPN. a network won't let a show go. I know. But relationships sometimes allow them to do that. Yep. And they, if they don't think they're going to get hurt, they don't worry. So even if there is a hit on UPN, ABC isn't looking at that and saying, boy, we got killed because a hit on UPN, the ratings on UPN are literally like one-tenth of the ratings that they were on ABC. Mm -hmm. So you don't worry about that per se. Yeah. All right. So tell me about, so you, so you went, you were successful. You got all these things going from six feet under to American family, which was, I believe one of the first Latino shows on mm -hmm. PBS that was nominated for a golden globe and an Emmy award. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, so that relationship going well, great. You're going for seven years, and then what happens? You know, I think in it, at least in my career, and I think if you look at Bob's too, you you'll see a pattern of of having done a bunch of things. And I think my philosophy is the same thing for too long gets a little stale. At least I've always liked I've always liked looking for new challenges. And I think we both came to we were having a great time. We were having success. Um, the business was a little challenged at the time because vertical integration was kind of skyrocketing through the business and um we were not aligned with the studio. We left the Fox fold um, very early on and went completely independent. And so we found that it was, you know, all these, all these networks were starting to almost exclusively buy from their sister studios and sister companies. Um, that's loosened a lot over the last couple of years. Um, but at the time, the early 2000s, mid 2000s, it was the height of that. And so we found it a little bit frustrating to, to navigate that system. But, but at the end of the day, I think we all, we just, we both felt time for a change, time to do something different. Um, he went to Showtime first and, you know, after, have, after passing on it, um, previously and then said, no, I think it's time for, for a change. I said, I don't, don't argue with that. Go, go with God. <clears throat> I stayed running the company one more year myself, um, because we had six feet under still on the air. We had just put a new show on, um, on UPN called Eve, um, which I felt like I had the responsibility to help launch it, um, to some degree. So I stayed for another year and then, I finally got to the place of, yeah, I want to change. And coincidentally, that's when the WB um, came calling. And I said, yeah, you know what? Maybe it's time to try one of these opportunities. We'd, we had been offered to run so many networks, Bob and I together, mm -hmm. as well as separately over the, over the years. And we kept saying, no, 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 no. And then we finally both said, oh, why not say yes one once in a while, you and know, that was a tough situation that you went into, which I don't think you knew it was going to be like, because for those of you who don't remember, that was the time where the WB or the frog network <laughs> and UPN were had their thing and they weren't experienced much. It's sort of like this similar situation today with uh, about three or four years ago with Sirius uh, XM and how they merged together. And, and that's what happened with the WB and UPN. But when, when David came in, 
it was sort of like this last ditch effort for the company to say, hey, maybe we can make this work. And, and he was in a position which is a very difficult position to be in. But, of course, he still launched uh, Supernatural. It's yeah. been on the air for uh, almost a decade. <laughs> and Beauty and the Geek with yeah. Jason Goldberg and Ashton Kutcher, which was a, a wonderful, uh, endearing show. Yeah. Love that show. It was a fun, and it was a, a, a nice hit for us, too. Unfortunately, I, I think the writing was on the wall, I think, for that network. I had no idea. I, you know, was shielded from that a lot in a good way and just asked to focus on trying to get you know get get some hits together but um i think that it was just from a fight just from a internal economic standpoint they were it just was a, a such a money drain that they were they were just not, not interested in keeping it now you go to mtv after that as the president of mtv this is something i never understand uh, about things and now uh, you were there for uh, three years i think three years or, yep. and now suzanne daniels who's a very probably a good friend of yours mm-hmm. and a good friend of everybody she's a really wonderful executive yep this is what i don't understand about companies and again that's a viacom company so that's overseen by doug and then above that of course well van van toffler Van Overseas Toffler, MTV. MTV, but over Van Toffler is who? Philippe. Philippe, that's yes. right. But, but the point I'm trying to make is this, is that the average age of the person who watches MTV is between, you know, 14 and 25 years old. Yep. Okay? As you know, there's a lot of brilliant people out there who are 25 or 30 years old. Why does a network that's focusing in on that group of people hire people in their 40s and <laughs> 50s to run a network where, technically speaking, somebody who's actually living in the world that's the world today in that point might have a better idea? Now, I know what you're saying. Well, Barry, it's up to me to hire those people right. in those positions underneath me who can actually figure that out and, and convince me and everybody to go. But... When you come into a job like that, do you, I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe this is too tough a question, but do you actually believe when you're going into MTV in your first day and you're organizing your office that you're going to be a guy who's going to have the voice and the spirit of the MTV generation? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, what we remember as the MTV generation, maybe yes, because I, we grew up on it, right? We grew up as it grew up. What it is now, it it's morphed into something completely different than what it was. Obviously, they lost music from from the um, from the brand for the most part um, when the videos went away. Um, their idea made a lot of sense to me um because i was originally brought in to head up scripted programming and get them into into the scripted world and the pitch was very similar to what i was doing at the wb how do we get those that young female demo into into the tent um how do we get what abc family is is attracting what the wb did attract and what the cw does to some degree right why do people want explain to our audience why people want a lot of times, more than not, 
the young female demo. Why is that so important to networks? Almost more than the young male demo. I would say definitely they want the young female demo. And the young female demo tends to bring the older female demo as well because it'll it's if you have um, mother-daughter viewing, um, teen mom, 16 and pregnant, good examples of that. Um, you have a lot of you have a lot of advertisers that want to to get into that very specific demo. Um, Jersey Shore was there at the time. It, it had just launched when I came there, and that was a juggernaut that had every demo coming into it. So, I think if they were able to find you know more. Jersey Shores all the time, which are unfortunately very rare, you know, shows that just like ignite the, the, in the zeitgeist in such a powerful and, and ridiculous way. Um, they might change their, they might change their makeup of what they're selling. Um, if they, if they came up with more of those, right. But the, the, the mainstay, the, the bread and butter of, of, of what they sell is, is females 12 to 34. And very specifically, the, the, the core is um, 18 to 24. They're okay if guys come, but they're not chasing guys. They're chasing women. So, so their idea was how could they get how how can they get how can they program scripted programming originally f um, for for that core. So, so summarize your three years there in a few minutes <laughs> of your feeling of what you were able to accomplish and what you failed to accomplish in your own mind, what you wish you had done, been able to do. Um, I am really proud of this, of the shows that I shepherded. Um, uh, you know, Teen Wolf and Awkward got serious critical praise, serious audience connection. Um, and I felt were qualitative shows that represent the kind of stuff that I I had always done. You also developed, I believe, and now I'm going to probably uh, be wrong here. You developed a really, really edgy kind of vampire thing or what it was it with Brian Kalen or Count? <laughs> oh, um, yes. Um, what was, the name what was it called? Um, it was Death for, Valley. Yeah, Death, Death Valley. Valley. Yeah, was wasn't that funny? Season. It was, it was crazy. Incredibly hilarious and <laughs> yeah. edgy and bizarre. And I liked it a lot. That it was, was incredible. Didn't it, get the didn't get the play, but it was no. like very very original. Yeah, yeah, it, and it, it, yeah, it just you know, the MTV model is all about what just catches on you know what what ignites the pop culture zeitgeist right um a jackass an osborne's um a teen mom 16 and pregnant jersey shore they just kind of happen right scripted shows don't just happen if you don't go out and find that audience and market to that audience and recruit that audience an audience isn't going to find something on a channel that's that they don't even know what number it is um let's so death valley suffered because we didn't go after it we didn't publicize it we didn't it didn't get a it didn't get really serviced and before we 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 move into the last part of this i want to sort of go against what you just said okay how do you explain a show like mad men working then on a network that no one in the free world even knows anything about it except for these old movies 
how does a show become a huge, the advertising budget for that show in the beginning, let's face it, um, you weren't seeing billboards all over town when it was launching, were you? Yeah, I think they spent some significant money. They play, my my perception of, of, of that group, the AMC network, is that they play in the premium cable space with in terms of how they market, what they spend. They're very targeted. They don't put a lot out there. But Mad Men received a big um, promotional. Before it came on. At least in the seconds, going into the second season. I think also yeah, no, I know the in the second yeah. season, but in the first, I felt but, like it. But its ratings were minuscule in the first season. It was not. It was, in fact, of all of that network's programming, it was the least, um, you know, highly rated. It got critical acclaim, got all the awards and that's what that's the game they were in i i believe and why do you think going back to fox and amc why do you think certain networks like amc have a low rated critically acclaimed show they ride it out fox bigger network arrested development emmy award-winning they don't ride it out why you know i wonder if that was a matter of timing um, Arrested Development happened a little bit in 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 the moment where Fox was not necessarily having a lot of other successes, I believe. Um, and then I don't know if there was a a business model that made sense for for that at the time. Um, I believe there was a business model that made sense for Mad Men in terms of just owning a library, and I think that's I think. The Lionsgate group gets a lot of credit for getting behind that, and, and not just that show, but all these shows they they put money into, from Weeds to um, to Mad Men to um, all the other things they do. I think they b- believe that there is a real there's a revenue stream. I'm not sure that a half hour single co- camera comedy at the time. Um, because it was kind of ahead of its time, Arrested Development. I'm not sure it would have proven to have a an upside, and that's what I think all this all the um studios would look at. Explain to our audience why multi-camera sitcoms, who used a traditional setup that went way back to I Love Lucy, do so much financially better and so much bigger ratings than single camera shows that are shot like a film, like, in other words, like Arrested Development or Louie. Why is it that Two and a Half Men has 20 million people watching it a week and a show that many people would argue is just as wonderful and even more probably like just a... Uh, an edgier kind of material like a uh, a show like Arrested Development just don't get the ratings you know I, it is it's it's a great question because I think we're all trying to figure that out everybody you know at the network everybody at the studios um, want to figure it out um, you're right and it's not only two and a half men it's Big Bang Theory you know is huge in syndication um, Friends is still huge in syndication um I think that there's a little bit of a comfort factor and an ease with which you can watch a multi-camera show that doesn't require the audience to absolutely 
pay attention to every single bit and finessing of, of story nuance and, and, um, and kind of camera work, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of have a multi-camera show on and listen and kind of watch and enjoy and laugh and, and something that's a little more sophisticated or a little more challenging from a, from an attention kind of standpoint is not going to be something that you are most likely going to turn on at 11 o'clock or 1130 and, and, and feel like you have to really focus. And it is fascinating because you came from the world of, of the playwright and the stage and, but most people don't. And so what's, what's unusual about it is you would think that people would feel more familiar with how a movie is shot because they've seen movies from when they were a little kid on TV and, in the you know in movie theaters and and they love movies and and single camera is shot like a movie and plays you you know you got to see well high school or grade school you go to see the play or maybe you go to Broadway once a year and see so it's not as a familiar art form yet that's the one that works the most I know it's and believe me you you we've just gone over my resume I have lived in the multi camera um, comedy world most of my career and enjoyed it and loved it. There's nothing like getting to that stage on tape night and make and seeing it come together and 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 if if it's not coming together working to make it come together um, like live theater um, and. I would love to see more of it back. I I feel like there was there became a snobbery against it um, several years, many years ago, and that we haven't quite fully recovered from. And the only the only network that really hasn't ever adopted that snobbery is CBS. They've stayed the course. They they continue to do what they believe is their broadest appeal kind of comedies. And, and guess more, what the number one most watched network is? <laughs> CBS. That's right. <laughs> and those show and those their their shows are syndicatable assets. That's it is I hear the other networks talking about it. I hear my studio saying the big score is a multi-camera show on CBS. The big score is a multi-camera show. The problem is only CBS is really doing them. So until... And they only launch one show a year because like Bob Greenblatt on Showtime, everything works. Exactly. <laughs> so just tell me about your uh, your present gig now with Bob and yes. an overall deal there where you're uh, bringing... Uh, projects and that work now it's starting development season so yep. pretty much I'll probably be meeting with you I soon. was going to say I hope we're going to cook something up uh, we are. I have some ideas <laughs> Good. I have some ideas Good. I need some help <laughs> all right yeah look I'm excited about it it is um it's certainly coming full circle um with Bob who you know has I've, I've just remained friends with for the past 20 something years um Although it's not being in the trenches with him because he's got a, a very, very um, huge and expansive job um, over there, um, aside from just putting the programming on. Um, but, you know, I have a really good long relationship with Bella, who is um, the head of the studio, who comes, who I, Bob and I did the Elvis miniseries with her when she was running um, CBS miniseries. Relationships, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Um, I go way back with Jan Salky and... Um, Relationships. <laughs> um, so it's it's a really, it's kind of coming home in and a way. And not being an asshole. Not being an asshole. Be behave appropriately. That's all I can say. Behave appropriately. That's the word for today. I hope I uh, and so, and so you're doing that, and and this is the thing. This 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 is the elephant in the room. Okay, okay. when you go into a deal with a guy who you were a, a partner with, 
Okay, you sat across the table, eye to eye, you developed shows together. There has to be an unspoken thing when you took the gig in your mind that's like, all right, I'm going to develop some. There's no way he's going to be able to say no to me. At least one thing. <laughs> I, I'm going to at least get one thing on the air. There's no way he, he, can, he can say no to everything, but he's going to give me one. Is that in your mind? No, not at all. Really? Oh, and, and I will tell you because, I mean, yes, do I hope that? Do I, do I believe that something will come of this, this um, deal? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I was in those jobs, so I know you, it isn't like, it isn't always about the relationships and, and you want it to be, you want to be in business with the people you like, but when you're facing a scheduling board and you're, you know, job is on the line and you have to make things better, you got to pick what your gut tells you is the best, is the best shows. That's true. But in my mind, and I don't know Bob (laughs) as well as you know him. But in my mind, if Bob, I have him sitting on the fetal position in his in his home, and he's looking at his development budget, whatever that budget is, how many millions of dollars it is, in my mind, he's looking at it and he's saying, you know what, I'm just going to just take this little corner off here, and I'm going to put this aside in my own mind, and if there's one, at least one thing that David brings that's even like close to competitive with something else, or if it's, it's maybe not as good as whatever, I'm just going to be like, you know what, here, here, take that, make that happen. And let's see if we can do that. I I believe in his mind. He's like Kevin Riley. Kevin Riley was a, um, a young executive uh, when Peter Engel was starting the Save by the Bell franchise. Yep, yep. I believe that uh, Peter Engel and Kevin have this thing where I think Peter and I think they feel that they helped each other in the beginning and Peter was one of the first jobs that Kevin ever had. Uh And I knew that every time Peter Engel went and took a meeting for a sitcom or something to pitch, I knew that Kevin Riley would carve off a little piece and say, <laughs> here's seventy five dollars or $100,000 for the writer or for yourself to write and go write it and then bring it back. He might think it might not get on, but I'm going to keep going and give this guy something that's tangible. I know it's good. I don't know if I'll pick it up, but I'm going to do that. So that's what I think happens. Yeah, look, I, I do I have a um a relationship that that hopefully um has some of that love coming coming at me? Sure. I I I do and and but at the end of the day, the product has to be there. Um cuz I don't think in in a world where nothing is working or almost nothing is working, the name of the game is you've got to deliver right in those jobs. That's so friendships aside, you've got to, you've got to have the goods. Hopefully because of our friendship, we'll figure something out that, um, that is mutually beneficial to both of us. A little word association now, before we get into the final question, I'm just going to mention something or somebody or something. And you tell me what comes to your mind. Okay. Anything could be a sentence or whatever. Um, Jennifer Aniston, superstar. Like one word answer, or no, just, it could no, be anything. Uh, yeah, look, uh, love her to pieces. She was the last person, the last or the second cast member that we found. Um, she's one of the nicest people I've ever met. Just truly, truly lovely. 
um, and immensely talented, really anchored that show for all of the seasons, I think. Peter Chernin. Love him. One of my first mentors and one of my first bosses. Great. Gave me, gave me a start. Brought me to, you know, hired me at L- in L.A. and gave Bob and I our company start by setting us up um, under Fox. Jeff Franklin. Loved working on Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Um, I think it, I think it was, it was a success. The Niederlander family. (laughs) Um, a great television miniseries, um, about the dynasty of Broadway. It would, it would be a great show. It is so full of stories and scandal and everything. Um, they gave me my real start, my real first start. So I owe a lot to them. Um, Wendy Wasserstein. Oh, hilarious. Just truly one of the funniest women I ever met. Loved her. Wow. Marta Kaufman and David Crane. I can't say enough good things about them. I mean, they they are true, true creative geniuses. Um, Had so much fun with them, you know, on the set and off and um, love them. Les Moonbiz. Oh, you're hitting all the good ones. Um, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about Les. He's my, you know, my my true mentor, my inspiration. He told one piece of advice. He told me that I never forget. Um, he's like, I don't care what. How do you say? I don't care what people say about you. I don't care how people feel about the process. At the end of the day, you just want to be successful putting shows on the air. And I liked the simplicity of that, um, you know, the encouragement to, at all costs, in and whatever way you feel, is 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 accomplishable to get shows made. D. L. Hughley, um, really, really talented, talented comedian. Um, also, really great to work with. Loved, um, loved his show. Uh, the creator of Six Feet Under, Alan Ball. Alan Ball, truly a genius. I mean, the word his words are sublime in in and and unparalleled. I think by anyone um, in that in that kind of genre. In the, you know when we when we when we did Six Feet Under, it came about a little bit because American Beauty, in my opinion, had. Um, kind of created an, uh, its own genre, its own kind of, wow, a really heavy drama that's really darkly funny. Um, and we kind of talked about how do, you, how do you tap into that sensibility that I think he uniquely created and, and bring it to television. And that was um, where, what resulted in Six Feet Under. Um, just truly one of the most amazing writers I've ever worked with. Wow. Yeah, I oh god, I would watch anything he does, or I would work on anything with him. What show is that you developed that were juggernaut hits would not work today? I don't know. I think I think most of them that I've been involved with would work today because they almost to a to a fault they all had real strong voice and i think if you have a voice it should transcend the the times 
Now, that said, there's some shows I've done in the past that there may not be a, a, a kind of venue for anymore, or, you know, that people aren't doing shows like that anymore. The multi-camera show, as we talked about, is challenged. Um, you know, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, which was um, a real big hit and, and it really helped um, shore up that TGIF kind of sensibility um, on ABC. I don't know that there's a, a market for that kind of show that's very, you know, very easy, very easy, not particularly edgy or particularly, you know, controversial. Um, I don't know that a lot of networks are doing um, things like that. So you might be a little challenged to try to find a home for shows like that. But I think comedy, comic voice and strong voice always kind of transcends the ages. And the question that I think our audience would really want to hear the most is... You're in the rooms of the casting sessions for Friends. Mm -hmm. You're there from the beginning. You're there in those tests at the studio, at the network. You're going to find characters. You get one, then you go for another and another. If you can, in a few minutes, can you tell our audience was it like a really struggle to find them or was it a situation where like somebody would come in and it didn't matter if 10 people came and you were like that's our guy that's our girl and then tell us if it came down to something maybe some people that came in and tested who are big stars now but yep. didn't get that gig yeah that process i remember v almost as if it was yesterday because it was one of the hardest shows to, to put together, one of the hardest casts to ever put together. Some fell into place right away. I'll, I'll walk you through if you want to hear the um, I think the, the audience the thing. would be fascinated by that um, and inspired by yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's a great story um, because, you know, all of those six kids had not really done much. They'd all had small shows, short-lived shows, or guest-starring roles in shows, or done pilots that hadn't gone, but they mostly hadn't really done anything. Um, the f first person we set was David Schwimmer. And the reason we set David Schwimmer without even, we just offered it to him, was we had done a pilot with Kaufman, Crane and Bright two years earlier at ABC that was called Couples. And we, it was, it came, to, the lead um, role came down to David Schwimmer and one other actor. And we went with the other actor and the pilot didn't go. And Martin David always thought, well, if we had gone with Schwimmer, maybe it would have had a chance. And so when they wrote Friends, they kind of had him in mind. And would people know that other actor? Yes, should I say. You can say anything. Um, Jonathan Silverman. Oh, of course. Well, he had a show on that was on for 40 years yeah, anyway. So. he's great. I mean, he's great. It, the pilot did not go because of, yeah. because of that. But, but they had fallen in love with David Schwimmer and... Um, uh, so we set him right away. He was Ross. Um, we offered um, Monica to Taya Leone. Passed. Um, we offered... And by the way, we, we were lucky uh, on all of this because... Um, but we, she went on to have her own series. She's a, great, she's a, great, she's a great star. Um, she might have been great, but... Um, we offered Rachel to Jamie Gertz, and she passed. Went on to have her own yeah, show. Her own show, yeah. These we, we were, we were, um, you know, you're on point. We were, yeah, casting. Um, we offered um, because NBC had a deal 
um, with this actor at the time. We offered Chandler to Craig Bierko. Remember Craig? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he passed. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so Monica, we thought Courtney might be, might be Rachel. Um, Courtney Cox. And, sh- and we kept saying, would you come in and read for Rachel? And her manager and agent kept saying, no, 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 she's Monica. She is, she is her, in her real life. She's Monica. That's who she is. She identifies with this character. And we were like, hmm, um, I don't see it. I think she's more the Rachel type. And I remember finally saying to the, to the writers um, in a casting session, all right, if we ever want to get to a place where we get to see her as Rachel, why don't we humor her and let her come in and read for Monica? She did, and they called me. They, they, she read for the producers. They called me um, from the casting office. Oh, she was right. She's Monica. <laughs> um, and then she had to audition at the network against um, Nancy McKeon, also a veteran um, TV star, right? Um, Phoebe, she was a lock. When she came in and read, there was no other choice. We loved her. Um, uh, she nailed it. She, you know, Lisa became Phoebe. Um, it was a little complicated because she was on Mad About You at the time. So the writers really cleverly just wrote her in as as Ursula's twin sister. And we did a number of crossover episodes um, between Mad About You and, and um, Friends. Um, the two remaining ones were the hardest. Um, we couldn't find Chandler. Um, I think John Cryer might have read for us, if I'm not mistaken. Um and we couldn't find Rachel. And Matthew was guest starring in a pilot um, that we did that year at Warner Brothers. And just a guest star. And it was during a run through of, of that pilot that we, me and um, the head of casting then, Barbara Miller, looked at each other and we're like, Chandler. And so we, 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 we got him in like the night before we went to table. And Jennifer was on a, sh- a CBS show called Muddling Through. It was just like a six-episode order. And when we couldn't find um, Rachel, we said, okay, let's consider second position, right? And for those of you listening, second position deals are they're rare on television because a network doesn't want to go forward, put their pilot together, and hire somebody who is in first position on another show and that show goes, and then they're stuck having to recast when the testing shows that that was your best part of it. <laughs> it's demoralizing, but occasionally it happens. So we so we cast her in second position, and when Friends got picked up in, in May, and so did Muddling Through for another six episodes. And it could have been the worst nightmare in the world because we might have had to recast her or try to recast her. And somehow... Muddling Through was with Sony or TriStar at the time and CBS and somehow through begging and 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 relationships and 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 pleading um they allowed her to do both shows and which is as Dave will tell you you can count on half a hand when that has ever happened in the world because a network president doesn't want another network president to know you want to know that this is the face of your network if they're going to be a star 
and apparently both networks at the time didn't think that the shows were going to be that strong. Right. Uh, yeah. And and yeah, if that show had so she had to do six episodes while we did our show, our, our first six episodes. So she was doing double time, like just like doing two shows at once. And yeah, there was always the possibility that that CBS show could continue. We just got lucky. <laughs> I'll go back to luck. Um, that we, we we rolled the dice. We we bet on the the actor that we believed would make the show work, but we rolled the dice, and it might not have uh, worked in our favor. Um, that's always worth doing if you really believe you have the you have the right one. Great story. Your biggest disappointment in your career. Wow. I mean, I have to say, I don't have many disappointments. Um, I hate to sound too, um, uh, too perfect, but, um, you know, and this is, I don't know. Can if I this get is... a blood transfusion with you right now while you're here? <laughs> I know. It's, it's I would weird. love I just... to have no disappointment. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess, um, uh, I did a show while I was at MTV, um, that I was particularly proud of and, um, and really thought was great called, I just want my pants back, which was a comedy that Doug Lyman directed and Doug Lyman who did swingers was his mm -hmm. first film and then the movie go. And I thought it was quali qualitatively. It was really good. It got great reviews, great, um, great buzz, great kind of goodwill towards it. And it just, um, it, you know, it didn't. It wasn't able to go as a second season, and that was my. That was probably my biggest disappointment of a show that I really felt um, deserved a chance and 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 couldn't get there. Your proudest moment professionally. I would have to say um, when we won the Golden Globe for Six Feet Under. That was kind of an out of body experience. All right. Final question is, if you had any advice for the young artist who's like living in a studio apartment somewhere, check to check, doing a day job that they hate but want to be in the business and want to get to the point of some of those great artists that have come into the rooms and won jobs and gotten your attention, what advice would that be? And the two-parter to it is, what advice do you have to the young executive, the person who wants to be on your side of the business and wants to be able to have the kind of career that you have? Um, yes, great questions. Um, first and foremost, I really believe you have to really want to be in this business. You have to want it so much more than almost anything because – there's too many people that want to be in it. There's too many people that want to create and be artists. There's too too many people that want to be executives and be part of the business. Then there are jobs, right? Or then there are opportunities. So it has to be, come from a really passionate place, first and foremost. And secondly, I think you have to be really dedicated and patient because it doesn't happen Careers don't do not happen overnight. Um, you know, many of these comedians we've talked about over the the last hour or so, you know, have had worked doing stand up on the road for years and years and years, kind of honing their voice and their and their talent. Um, an executive, I think, takes 
a while to learn how to be an executive and how to how to you know talk the talk and and go through the procedures and the and the process um so you have to have patience you have to have passion and patience and you have to just have conviction of what you think is is good is 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 tasteful um one boss of mine once said to me you're only paid for your opinions and this entire business is subjective so have them and express them because that's what your value is is that is can you identify something that's really good or can you generate something that has true connective kind of relatable and 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 um poignant kind of connection with the audience Thank you so much. This has been so inspirational. You have been an amazing guest, and this being your first podcast, I am very proud of this moment, and uh, I hope that I have behaved appropriately. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I thank you so much for coming. I hope it was okay for you. I've had a blast. This is great. Thank you. Thank you All so much. Right. And as usual, you're listening to me, Barry Katz from Industry Standard, and if you like the show... Tell all your friends, and if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> they say it's the glory, I'll scream your name, put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same you pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.